Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, should artists stand up to cancel culture? My guest today has a strong take on that and many other controversies surging through our cultural conversation. Anish Kapoor is one of the world's most recognisable contemporary artists. His monumental geometric sculptures punctuate the skylines of major cities, from the stainless steel curves of Cloudgate in Chicago to London's 115-metre scarlet helter-skelter orbit. As a painter, he's preoccupied by the sheer power of colour. In 2009, I remember him shooting blood-red wax from a cannon onto the hallowed halls of Britain's Royal Academy Museum. Well, next year, he'll unveil his work made with the blackest material in the universe during the Venice Biennale. And that has opened up a fierce argument about intellectual property rights. Kapoor says he wants his art to do the talking, but he's also an influential voice in the so-called culture wars. He's worried about the creep of tokenism in creative institutions and a tendency towards cancelling voices who find themselves on the wrong side of a taste or political divide. So how has the art world that he's inhabited since his first works were sold in the 1980s changed? Anish Kapoor, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. You're one of the most renowned contemporary artists and famed for your sculpture. But in 1990, you said, I'm a painter who works as a sculptor. Is that still how you see yourself? The short answer is yes. I think one of the things that I've come to in the work I've made over the last 30, 40 years is the idea that objects don't fully represent themselves in their three-dimensionality. They are three-dimensional and something else. And it's that something else that I seem to be drawn to. How would you describe your overall oeuvre? I've seen so many different ways that you've approached art through those massive, colourful canvases a lot of people associate with you. Sculpture, we can see in the background actually talking to you, you you have sculpture behind you. How much has that balance changed over the years? I think the most important thing there for me to perhaps declare is that I have a practice. I work in my studio, I go to the studio every day, and I don't feel that I have some grand message to pass on. Out of my practice, however, things occur. And I pursue those questions that emerge tirelessly. That is, that's the real work, is to keep at it and 
at it and at it. I don't sit there and ponder, you know, what am I going to do next? I go into the studio and jump in. Let me ask a little bit and tell our, our audience who may be curious about your background. You're born in Mumbai in 1954, but you've often said you don't want to be framed as an Indian artist. Why is that? I'm very proud of my Indian origin. It means a great deal to me. I'm as Indian as Picasso was Spanish, if you like. You know, one can read Picasso's work in terms of his Spanish origin, but it would be a great error, wouldn't it, to look at that and overlook his huge inventive power. And I think that's what it comes down to in the end, is this curious mix between the individual and the background culture, especially today, where all the museums in the world pay bogus lip service to um, so-called world art, while they continue to present the, the canon of art as white, male. And I think time has come now for us to look again at that carefully, understand that there are women through history who've been able to find true great creative power, that not all art history is to be seen through the white lineage, the white male lineage. Let's look for other ways. One of the biggest talking points in the art world and in exhibitions and in, in museums has been around representation. You you use the word now tokenism as something you disapprove of. I'm a bit unclear in my own mind where you think something perhaps going back and bringing more female artists to the fore, more uh, artists of colour often parts of the world that have been perhaps less well foregrounded. Where is it tokenism and where is it justified? Because it's going to be very subjective, isn't it? Well, we've got to go beyond that. There is the old, old, wonderful thing, which is called connoisseurship. Now, let me give you an example. The Museum of Modern Art in New York recently opened its collections after a reverb. They had room after room after room, jam-packed with an artist from over here, an artist from over there, an African artist, a Chinese artist, hung next to each other. And then there was a room for an artist who I admire, and who is a great artist, but still, a room given over to Richard Serra, the great sculptor. But Richard was the only one who had a room to himself. Now, if that isn't tokenism, what is? It says, the great male white artist gets his palace, and everybody else has to put up with collections, if you like, bought almost like exotic items from an airport shop. I say, go to hell, Moma. I don't want to be part of that crap. Museums all over the world, in the name, if you like, of global representation, are playing this silly game. I want to talk to you about your exploration of two prominent features of your work, and that's yes. colour and geometry. And one of your preoccupations has been the colour red, particularly those big visceral pieces which people associate with you, often evoking blood insides of the body, both powerful as colour, but also in a sense repellent and attractive at the same time uh, to us as viewers. What sort of relationship do you want us to have with that kind of work? One of the preoccupations that's occurred in the process of working is 
a predilection to darkness. Colour, if you like, in the traditional sense, has always been a way to light. But mine has somehow led me to darkness. Red does darkness like no other colour does. So red, obviously, the interior, the body, as you've said, blood. But it does darkness not just physically. It also does darkness psychologically. And that is something that I keep bumping into and I keep pushing and exploring. Let's look into what you're doing next, which right now talking to to those who make art and exhibit art is obviously a rather vexed question. But you have a a plan for a major two-part exhibition in Venice and it will feature a mix of older works and newer ones. So very fascinating mix there. And you'll be unveiling your works using Vanta Black, a material known as the blackest of the black. It absorbs, I think, 99.96% of light that hits it. You'll notice I said that as if I was absolutely sure. So why don't you tell us about Vanta Black? What exactly is it? And uh, how did you come across it? I read a little piece in the newspaper about a man who claimed to have discovered the blackest material in the universe. Universe, no less. You know, of course, I've been engaged in darkness, as I say, over many, many, many years and made lots of so-called void works, emptied out dark spaces. I was in touch with this gentleman, Ben. I wrote him a note to say, Ben, would you, would you please please work with me. Let's work together. And, and he wrote back to me, saying, but this material, it's made for scientific purposes, has no relation to anything aesthetic. I said, come on, of course we could do it. Anyway, eventually we got there. It's a carbon molecule that's at a nano level. So nano meaning very, very tiny. And to give you a sense of scale, if it were one meter wide, it would be 300 meters long. And what happens is that the light enters this gap between these nanoparticles and is trapped in between there. And what happens then is that the light is turned into heat. So these objects are ever so slightly warmer than the surrounding area. The light that escapes, as you say, is 0.15 or 0.2% of the light. Our eyes, however, are incredibly efficient. We can see even small variations. Black is a curious colour because it's only blacker than another black. You've got to put one next to the other to be able to tell. Why did you want to work with Vanta Black? So if painting is about giving appearance to objects, then these works that I've been making, these black works I've been making, are doing exactly the opposite. They're giving disappearance to objects rather than appearance. And I'm interested in this because it proposes um, the possibility that the object isn't as described, that the object is this curious thing that liminally lives between what's visible, what's not visible, what's represented and what's not represented. And it comes to the fundamental question that art is a mythological project. When you announced you were using Vanta Black, it did cause quite a stir in the art world because you struck a deal to become the only artist who could use it. Now, is it fair for just one creator to be able to own a colour or does that detract from cultural democracy for rather obvious 
reasons. If you've got it and somebody else can't have it. It's not a colour in the sense that you can't take it out of a tube and put it on a canvas. It doesn't work like that. The material is put onto a surface. It then needs to go into what is called a reactor. And then after all of that, it gets heated to very high level and then so on, so on, so on, so forth. And then it comes out as an object. So it's a highly technical, complicated process. And that stupid colleague artist of mine has made a huge fuss about it. Fine, I don't care. That's his business, not mine. Stuart Semple, who has taken up this cause, you don't really accept his argument because, as I understand it, and this is going to be laywoman speak, that you think it is not really a colour, it's a treatment or a variant or an application. Am I broadly right? Correct. Broadly, you're right. I do take the point about why exclusive. It's part, if you like, of this mythological project. Let's move on to art in public spaces. When your sculpture Orbit was unveiled at London's Olympic Park, it polarised viewers. For big works on public display, do you consider popularity when you design them? Once a work's out into the world, it has to fight its own territory. I can stand by it. I do it only because I believe in it, but it does have to fight its own territory. So that's one thing. The, the other is that we have deep, deep confusion about public space and what it is and what it represents. Public objects speak of the future. They speak of nationalism. They speak of all sorts of weird, weird things that don't appear at first to be evident. I mean, think of the debate about people associated with slavery and the sculptures that have been taken down and or need to be taken down or whatever else it is. Public objects matter. And we need to, I think, enter into a sophisticated conversation about what public space is and how it infiltrates our deep inner lives. In September, you were a judge at the Index on Censorship Awards. You gave a speech warning strongly against self-censorship and the pressure, as you saw it, to police one's own artistic expression. And you said that that was growing. I read that as an, an artist's version of the argument about cancel culture, people being rather afraid of being seen uh, to overstep the mark, whether it's on content, on sensibilities, or on a kind of ideology or political approach to their work. What is it that you are worried about specifically? The country I grew up in, India, now has neo-fascist government, and I will not put it any other way, Modi and his cohorts. What they do is to literally oppress anybody who criticizes the government. Now, what I see is that my colleague artists in India keep quiet about the government on the whole. Why do they keep quiet? Fear. Who can blame them at one level? But this self-censorship, and there's no other way to say it, does things to the human spirit which we have to resist. All artists do it. You know, I'm making a painting and I'll hear myself saying, oh, what is so-and-so, so-and-so in the art world going to think of it? Can I really get away with this? Has someone done this before? Or whatever else. I have to, and I see myself, I watch myself doing it. I watch myself saying, you know, get out of my head. I don't want to hear this. You know, go away. Um, 
we all, we all do this to ourselves in so many ways. I think we need to have the courage constantly to not censor ourselves. The counter-argument goes something like this, benchmarks and norms change. And we do, in some ways, police ourselves creatively, whether we're writers, whether we're artists, to the extent that maybe language that we might have used in the past, we think looks odd or offensive now. And I wonder... For instance, let me weigh it in with an example, because you used it in an interview with us at The Economist a couple of years ago. You said, we live in times of political correctness. We talked with you then about the idea, for instance, that a white artist, could they or should they explore a black person's experience? Now, is that a leap of the imagination artistically? Or is it, as some people see it, kind of having a proprietorial relationship with someone else's experience and it would be better done by them. That's the challenge, isn't it? I still say fooey. Look, are women's issues only for women? Are black issues only for black people? Are white issues only for white people? What rubbish. It seems to me that the poetic imagination, that's the whole point of the poetic imagination, isn't it? To be able to imagine and enter Whatever it is I think a woman's question might be, can I go there? I may go there with a different spirit from that of a woman, but why on earth can't I go there? Of course I'm going to go there if, if that's what it must be. And, and likewise, the black experience. Come on. This is political correctness, so to speak, in absolutely the wrong direction. But is it as authentic? And I say that, you know, doing that you're born in India, I'm born in the north of England, and I'm about as white and freckled as you can possibly get, you know. So I suppose my, my authenticity, so to speak, is a bit around the Celtic experience. But it would be a bit odd were I to say, I might be able to ask probing questions about race and about identity, but it would be a bit odd if I said I can, I think I can channel the black experience. I think people would take one look at me and say... I don't think so. No, Anne, I would put it differently again. I would say your channeling of the black experience would give us insight into what it might be, if you like, to use your phrase, white and freckled, to have the lens through which you look at black experience. It doesn't stop a black person from having their experience of blackness. Come on. Which side is going to win this argument? Because at the moment, it feels to me... A bit like a tussle. A lot of people in various areas, whether it's around identity politics, about trans rights, about lots of areas saying, we will speak and paint and create as we find. And others saying, actually, no, this is over the line. This is wrong. You shouldn't be doing it. How does this end? I mean, in the end, of course, we have to look at what reads as genuine, what reads as resonant. That will be the judge. Whether it comes from this side or this side, who cares? The argument, however, is a multivarious, problematic, even confusing conversation. It's when the conversation becomes unidirectional and done in this way and this way only that we are culturally stuffed. Well, that's interesting because you've said sometimes that you find it hard for artists to be radical when art is for sale. You clearly don't mind disruption. You don't mind a ruckus. You don't mind a row. But you have also said that you play the game to an extent in the art market. I do. You're obviously a very high value 
creator of big works which have a lot of collectors after them. Does the art market to an extent constrain creativity? Capitalism has taken over everything, including the art world or especially the art world. And we artists have to continually remind ourselves that we are not the makers of luxury goods. We are in a different struggle, but when everything is for sale, every performed work, every so-called conceptual work, what happens is that we become makers of commodity. And I think we artists, me included, have to watch that with great care. Art has always set for itself the aim to be radical. So how then do we artists measure our radical ability or wish or desire against the for sale sign? Radical for sale, how can it be? So I think by continuing to be the idiot savant is one of them, be a fool, be naughty, be disrespectful, disavow, disagree, etc., etc. It's the only way. It's the only way. And it seems as if we've forgotten it or something like that. So where do you stand on something like NFTs, these non-fungible tokens, a rising trend in the art world, a way of owning art digitally? They're bringing in big bucks. We've been writing and reflecting a lot on them at The Economist. And the, the British auction house Christie sold a digital work of art for about $69 million. I think there's a bit of a division in the art world about whether this is an interesting fad or whether it is a full-on change in the way that we look at financing art and ownership of art. Have you looked into NFTs? NFTs are very, very, very confusing. To date, I doubt personally that there's a real artwork there. What there has been, images, creations, or whatever the hell one calls them, which have very successfully played the game of a desirable object. But it's a very odd thing. One person can own this object but lots of people can view them. And since they're all viewed online, I don't see the difference personally between owning one and viewing one. You can just view it forever. Why, why own it? There's a famous quote from Picasso that painting isn't done to decorate apartments. It's an instrument of war. One, do you agree with him in that, that sentiment? It did also make me wonder, what do you put on your own walls and what's the criteria? I think what he's talking about or what he was talking about was not war, meaning guns and war. I think he was talking about the same thing I was talking about earlier on, is that we are not makers of luxury goods. The project is cultural transformation, no less, and that that is war. It's interesting that we see the UK desperately taking the arts off the curriculum. The humanities across the board are under pressure from the government, right across the board, every single university. The BBC and all the public broadcast organisations are being told, your content has to be British. What, what I interpret that as is the government wanting to control, if you like, the very thing that is our inner picture of ourselves. This is art 
and culture under assault right across the board. Why? Because it's that important. And we have to somehow or the other resist, resist, resist this. Picasso's right, of course, to say art is war. And those in power recognize that cultural matters form our inner image and therefore they wish to control it. History matters. How we read ourselves, how we read our past tells us about how we read our present. It does make me rather curious to know what you surround yourself with. What do you look at for pleasure as well as what you feel very committed to creating and reflecting in art? My present preoccupation is with objects that are like, I have this, this wonderful lady you can see behind me, seated lady, three of them. There are three of them here. They're Indian. They're very, very, very early. They're mother goddesses. My interest in them is to their magical origins. What is a mother goddess? What is her power? And how does she hold reign 2,000 years later? Is it possible? And yes, of course, the answer to all of that is yes, it is. And yes, she does. I look at all sorts of things from medieval painting to contemporary art, to old Indian objects, new Indian objects, all sorts of things, right across the board. I try to keep culturally open, let's say. Anish Kapoor, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Anne. That's really been a pleasure talking to you. And we'd love to know what you think. Should art be a digital asset? Are you considering NFTs as part of your growing collection? Or would you rather physical works adorned your walls? To be honest, I am sticking with the Luddite version. I've got a bit of German expressionism on the wall behind me. And no, I'm not NFTing that. Write to us at podcast.economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. If my conversation with Anish Kapoor has you craving another cultural fix, may I suggest you make your way to The Economist website right now. Our books and arts team have crunched through 2021's arts offerings to bring you their definitive best of lists. You'll find recommendations on books, television and films. No need to panic about boredom over the holiday season there. And while you're on, why don't you become a subscriber? For our best introductory offer, let me send you to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.